0: you for being here
1: it's my or, pleasure
0: actually thank you for having me
1: well even better even more of a pleasure i mean i love this space and a lot of people don't get to see it so uh, yeah yeah as a, a matter bit of an inside track
0: th- this is beautiful and this is very exclusive where are we right now
1: we're in uh the members bar which is the one part of bike shed moto co that the general public don't normally get to see unless we're giving a tour and it is members only and it's something we don't have in our london club so, although we oh, have. You guys don't have it in the No, moment. we have, uh, I, I we have, have no idea. over 600 members in mm-hmm. London, but they they join for all the other reasons. They join for the community, the rides, the track days, the adventures, the trips, the camaraderie. Well, well, let, let, let's slow it down. Very,
0: yeah. I'm very excited about this, but let's slow it down real quick. So, right now we're in uh, Arts District, Los Angeles, California, at a new location. This has been open now three months, correct? Yep, that's right. Uh, this is Bike Shed Motor, com- uh, motor Company yep. or Motor Club. Motor Co. Modoco, yep. and uh, you guys origina- you guys originated in London uh, about thirteen years ago.
1: Yeah, just about. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, two thousand nine, two thousand eleven. We started properly as, now, a, as a business. Now,
0: now, as a what? What is the origins? What? How, how did you guys come along?
1: Well, uh, it was a hobby. It was it was a blog. So um, I guess it was about two thousand nine, two thousand ten, maybe. Um, I was riding motorcycles, and Vicky and I both worked in media and broadcasting and TV. And Vicky's your Vicky's your beautiful wife. Yeah, she's wife. my wife. And partner, and, business uh, partner. Yeah, so we, we both worked in media together, actually, and, and we got married. And, uh, and we both had great jobs, four-day week for me, so I was free on a Friday. And uh, for my birthday, we had recently seen Tron with that Ducati Sport Classic 1000 limited edition Black and gold motorcycle in the opening scene, and I was like, "What is that motorcycle?" And and when uh, Pierre Teblanche bought that bike out for Ducati, nobody wanted it, nobody liked it, and Brilliant. suddenly it became a legend. Vicky bought me one for my birthday, and I was getting into sports bikes and riding faster and faster, having grown up through off road and supermoto and yeah. and those giant supermotos that everybody was building in the early two thousands, and. Um, I got into the Sport Classic and started customizing it. But it was at that time when everybody was personalizing and customizing motorcycles. And it was very different from what had gone before. And it was very different from uh, the way motorcycle marketing was being run. Trade shows, magazines were all based around sport or commuting. And uh, it it was a trade environment that wasn't interesting to most people I knew. And they loved... Retro style, but modern performance. And this Ducati summed that up with upside down forks and Brembo brakes. And yet it was an air-cooled engine. And, and so I started customizing the bike. And Vicky said, why don't you blog about that? Because I was a creative. So give yourself an outlet. So I created a blog called Full Tilt and started writing about it. But at the same time, I had friends that were doing similar things. Uh, a couple of friends of mine, Tim and Kev, had a, a company called Spirit of the 70s. And they were customizing motorcycles cb750s early kawasaki's making them kind of modern retro there was a guy called adam who had untitled motorcycles was doing the same thing with bmw kind of the old kind of boxer twin airhead motorcycles doing what everybody's been doing for the past 12 years or so and um they had blogs and i was like well why don't we combine why don't we put it all together and uh
0: so simple but so creative yeah, uh, and awesome yeah it was kind of like we, nobody was doing we it. should
1: share this i mean the, the, the only person that was doing something was chris hunter with bike exif and it was email then this was before facebook really yeah so it was all on email and uh you get an email in your inbox every week i think or it was every day um but it was just pictures and yeah. this bike has flat side carbs or whatever and it's like okay fine um but i wanted to tell our story and then I ended up doing all the work. <laughs> but I, I, I said, well, you know, we, we need to call it something. We called it Bike Shed Motorcycle Club because we thought, well, it's a club. It's like a club when you find yeah. someone who rides. It's like being in some kind of club. And, um, and Bike Sheds in England, it's really colloquial. It's the, it's the big wooden hut in your back garden where you make things and hide things and work on motorcycles that you'll never finish or whatever. So we, I, I thought that was kind of a, an ironic name. And I also kind of like BSMC. It was a bit like BRMC, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. And I kind of thought this, is, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is the stupid English version of that. Yeah. And so I put together this kind of website blog that was Bike Shed. I kind of did everything. The guys kind of got a little bit involved. Uh, I was re-editing their stories. Uh, but, you know, we, we were a happy bunch of friends doing that. Um, but really, whenever we got together once a week in, in our local pub, uh, we really sort of talked about everything, apart from motorcycles, we talked about kind of fashion and cameras and lighting and stuff we liked, and it, we might talk about watches or we might talk about camera lenses or we, you know, whatever, adventures, right. travel. And, um, and I realized it was quite a unique crowd of people that are into more than just the machines, and they love the aesthetics, they love building, you know, they love a whole bunch of stuff. And um, I realized there was a community around it, and we said, well, let's do a show, and we, we, we were drinking beers. We were having one of those beer conversations. Um, and it was the, we were coming up to the uh, November uh, UK bike show, which is a big trade fair. And it's put on by the Motorcycle Industry Association, the MCIA. And all the brands have a footprint based on the size of their share of market, I think. And they get given this spot. And it's boring. You know, the only <laughs> women that you see in there are paid to be there or, right. or reluctantly dragged along by their other half – there weren't a lot of women in motorcycling that found that interesting. Um, and you, you're either seeing bikes that are available next year to buy that I wasn't interested in because no one was making anything I wanted to buy. Yeah, I'd rather have an older bike and work on it or the Ducati Customize Sport it, Classic. that you guys were doing, yeah. Yeah, they'd stop making that bike. They made it for three years and then they stopped because nobody bought one. Um, and so we were like, well, what would happen if we did a show? And straight away we were talking about really good food. And a place to sit and hang out and making it friendly for, you know, our other halves who don't ride or friends. With really good eye candy and photography and art on the walls based around bike culture, maybe live music. We talked about pop-up barber shops, pop-up tattoo shops, comfy Chesterfield sofas. It should look like somebody's big converted garage. And um, so the following week we met up for beers again and I said I booked a place. So I booked a many? How many
0: many people are you at this point?
1: About 12. 12. Um, Just me and a bunch of guys. I mean, you know, and mostly in media and TV. Um, I think Vicky was probably the only woman at the time, maybe. A few kind of, you know, wives and girlfriends got dragged in. But but it was a good bunch of people, a good bunch of creative people. And, um, you know, Vicky was very keen on the hospitality side of it and making it a place where she would go. Because she doesn't like going – she rides motorcycles – you you can't drag her to a trade fair she's not interested yeah no inter- or eating bad food and drinking shit coffee she's not interested in that or hanging around <laughs> kicking what most people
0: do in general unfortunately yeah
1: and it's kind of like wandering around kind of you know commenting on tires and suspension that's not really her thing so she yeah. wanted to make it th- a show that she would enjoy as well so um, a few months later we put on our first show and that kicked started bike shed as a business so we, we hired a couple of railway arches in Shoreditch around the corner from our destination now at a place called Shoreditch Studios. We, uh, by that time, I'd migrated the website onto Facebook and other people were writing to me saying, would you share my bike? And a lot of them were the bike BikeExif rejects because they didn't have good enough photos. Yeah. And Chris didn't really have time to edit people's photos or turn their stories around. And so I kind of got all the underdog stuff. So someone to build a beautiful bike, send me some crap photos I mean
0: that's always one of the greatest stories is getting the underdogs yeah so it is turning it into
1: it was kind of fun because I was giving them tutorials on how to take better photos and then I'd edit them and I'd kind of clone out all the crap in the background and right. so and I kind of won a lot of friends by doing that all across Europe and, and kind of beyond as well so when we did that first show, I emailed all those people that I was sharing their stuff or writing their stories for them um, I think By then, Facebook had about 20,000 followers as well, so it was growing. Yeah,
0: because 2007 to 2010, it was still private. You Mm. had to go to the university and do the email thing. It wasn't public.
1: Yeah, it it had opened up and it became about those communities. And everyone was sharing. It was a time for sharing. And the fact that you could link back to other people's sites. But all all those people said, yes, they'd come to this show. So I think we had 55 motorcycles, but from all over Europe. Uh, we had some, some exhibitors from Thailand as well. These guys called wow. Elder Helmets came from Thailand with their crash helmets. And uh, 3,000 people turned up to this show. And we had the pop-up barbershop. Yeah, shop. first show. Yeah, first show. Pop-up barbershop, pop-up tattoo, uh, art on the walls by Conrad Leach, who we have his art here right now. Um, and photography by great photographers. I mean, the whole thing was very similar to the club experience that we put on now because it was small scale. It was two railway arches and we hired, you know, play, you know, hired sofas, Chesterfield sofas, and we had a bar, and we had retail, but it was all curated. It wasn't stuff on sale. I was like, well, we want the new stuff from next year, not the sale stuff from last year that you're all trying to get rid of. Yeah. And um, we created this amazing show. How, and that how, how much? It. How
0: much did it, it? Of course, the economy and everything's changed in today's market. You know, as you know, instead of before. But how much do you think you spent on this, this uh, venture of just throwing an event with your friends? That
1: first show cost us 12 grand in 12,000 pounds, about 15,000, 16,000 A lot dollars. of money. Yeah, we, we just all chipped in. Yeah. and uh,
0: But still, it's not like a $2,000, let's get a keg and...
1: No, you know, it was definitely cow. more than that. We, yeah. we made an effort. We wanted yeah. something no, great. Yeah. And also at that time, it was a hobby, and I was earning good money in advertising, and most of my friends were making good money. So for us actually, we could afford for everyone to throw in two or three grand and see what happened. Beautiful. And uh, that first show was free, actually. We didn't charge tickets. Beautiful. And uh, we we got an amazing response in the UK motorcycle press. Um, A lot of brands came and said, where did you find all these women and young people? Which I thought was a funny question. Because it just... I mean, you know, if you speak their language, they might turn up. Yeah. was my answer. Um, And make it welcoming. Like, if you stuff... You know, m- models with too much makeup in lycra, and that's your representation of women in a motorcycle event. Then, real women riders won't go. Yeah, it's derogatory. It's it's not 1972. It,
0: it, so. it, it, it's interesting that you say 1972 because it, it's it's that's what the marketing was before. It was like, oh, people expect this and mm. like this, so let's advertise to that. But they weren't really communicating with with uh, their target market.
1: No, I mean, I I think it's I I. You know, I, we all love a super hot girl, right? right? I mean, I'm a guy. But I don't need one in my face trying to get data capture from me or marketing material or telling me about the new Panigale when they've just been given something to read. Right. I, that's awkward. I, I, don't, I, w- I don't want that. And, and I want to be in a place that represents the community. You know, it should have women in it because women exist in the community. Yeah. Um, so I think we, we kind of struck a chord with a whole crowd of people that love motorcycles but didn't like the way motorcycle culture was at that time. And they didn't go to trade f- They didn't read magazines, never mind not going to trade fairs. Yeah. And, and they wouldn't go to a dealer either. They're buying secondhand bikes and modifying them and customizing them. So it was a different crowd. And uh, the manufacturers were interested. And, um, and, the, and the press said we'd put on... A bunch of, I think the headline was something like, a bunch of amateurs put on the best motorcycle show the UK has seen. Something like that. And I was like, Bravo. wow. So we thought, well, we better do another one. Because that same year from 2012 into 2013 and 2012 was when we planned the show and May 2013 was when we did it because we also wanted a season opener I didn't really get why all the bike shows were at the end of the season I was like well I want a show at the beginning of the season not the end Um, but we kind of realized that we'd kind of struck a chord and that we we needed to continue this because at that time there was a kind of a zeitgeist there were you know Chris Hunter was out there with Bike Exif. Deus was kind of out there really championing bike culture. I think motorcycle riders pounced on Deus. I mean, they also did the surfing and all the other stuff, but I think bike culture really gave them a big kind of lift up. Yeah. Uh, also, the, I think there was the one show when it was still tied with the handbill. I think when... Alan and Tor were working together. I think they did a, a show together.
0: And these were shows that were going on before. Yeah, and that
1: was in the US. There was a show in the UK organized by Dave Mucci, the Moto Mucci guy. I think he organized it. I might be remembering all of this wrong. Um, I can't remember what that show was called. But all these motorcycles were on kind of You know, they were on pallets and there was kind of cool stuff going on. You could see there was a zeitgeist. It was like the owners of motorcycles, the creative crowd in particular, were taking over bike culture and they go, no, this is how you do it. This is what motorcycles should look like. And we were almost telling the manufacturers, this is what we want. We were building stuff that we liked and they weren't doing it. So I kind of realized that was pretty cool. And so we decided to do another show really quickly. So that same year we did another show in October 2013, as kind of the season closer, almost like this is what happened through the summer. And then we had 77 bikes, and I so think... like the recap. It was the recap, yeah. So it was the season opener, season closer. And we did think about that was the formula going forwards. And um, we, we did this second show. We hired two more railway arches. So we had four, or three or and a half kind of arches in Shoreditch. And uh, it was even bigger. I can't remember how many people turned up. 5,000 people, sounds right. I think 5,000 people turned wow. up. Wow. Because
0: uh, usually you get a good hit, the first one and the second one's like a little dip. And yeah, then and we the, charged
1: and five pounds for a ticket. And we had sponsorship. I think Motor Guzzi and Triumph sponsored the show. Very nice. Uh, which was great. Very happy with that. And, uh, and we made our money back and the, the money that we'd spent on the first show. So straight away we were suddenly break even business you know i didn't really think of it as a business i thought of it as a hobby and i thought wow there are people here that want to sponsor this the exhibitors who are trading want to trade and come in and sell stuff and we decided to turn it into a proper thing um we realized it was actually a business and so we started a company and we planned our third show and we went we moved Hugely kind of expanded into Tobacco Dock, which is this, the venue that we do our show at now in London, which is a big, I, uh, I heard, stunning venue. And,
0: and I heard about the show. I heard you guys bring in about 25,000 people.
1: Almost. Ni- Almost. 19,000 people. Yeah, well, almost know, 20. Well, this is yeah.
0: America. We we exaggerate yeah, 25, exactly 25,000 50 million trillion people. All those people. But uh but but I heard about the show but I my understanding my assumption was you guys started the club first and then the events but you guys started off events.
1: Yeah. I mean the event was kind of like an a, an annual celebration of our culture. Yeah. People like us, people who are going to be listening to this podcast, people who ride bikes, build bikes, fettle with bikes who want stuff personalised. They want stuff to be Paint interesting. And, and You know, it's, that crowd was, wasn't being represented. And, uh, and so this was our annual party. It was our celebration of, of what we do, whether it's photography or art or bike building uh, and all the other things that kind of circulate around that kind of culture. Now, and, w- and I think the DGR as well kind of inspired the barbershop side of it because the DGR also started in 2012. We did the first one when Mark Howard did the first one in Sydney. We did it in parallel in London. So me and Mark were like, well, I said to Mark, if you do one in Sydney, I'll do one under. So all of that was tied together. The gentleman rider, the barbershop haircut, but maybe with rolled up sleeves and tattoos on show. All of that stuff just
0: cigarette pack.
1: It was all kind of happening. Yeah, it was all just happening all at once. So I think we were part of that zeitgeist, but we wanted to push it and drive it and not just be riding the wave. We wanted to amplify it and make it more reachable, more accessible. Because motorcycling's has always been very exclusive. Yeah. And we wanted to make it inclusive and, and add more people.
0: Can, 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 you, can you paint me a picture? Like, um, if I go back 12 to 15 years ago in the United States, there wasn't many, like, especially for Harley-Davidson's and stuff, there wasn't many customization companies. There was a, a handful, Custom Chromes, uh, Clockworks. There was a handful of companies. Mm. Now, there's unlimited amount of customizations and uh you know california's always had a style i just had somebody on the podcast not too long ago they're from texas and now they started getting really crazy on their builds and they said california had an influence Mm -hmm. can you paint me a picture of what the motorcycle community looked like 15 years ago customization was it big did it people you know like Back in the days, kind of people saw Harley riders are like, oh, you know, trouble, you know, how was it looked upon in general?
1: In the UK? In the or, UK. I mean, in the UK, custom culture didn't really exist uh, beyond the Harley kind of ground up build kind of culture. People associated right. custom bikes with Harley Davidsons and that very old school kind of 70s, 80s, you know, skulls and flames and chrome and shiny paint jobs. and And it wasn't something most people were doing, but there was... A huge culture for modification. And there were, you know, obviously upgrading suspension and brakes and exhaust pipes and, and kind of, ma- as you guys say, tailpipes, yeah. m- mufflers, end cans. Um, you know, making a motorcycle work better because manufacturers build motorcycles to a price. Right. And also they don't necessarily have good taste. They're all kind of designed by a committee and by the marketing department. They don't necessarily know what they're doing.
0: Almost by people that don't ride. Almost. Yeah,
1: almost. Yes. In the past, not so much now. Um, and bikes were getting uglier, So we had to fix that. So there was a whole community of people and it would pick on certain motorcycles. And, you know, people were kind of moving that the whole of the street fighter thing was quite big, taking sports bikes and taking the fairing off. Uh, And also there were certain motorcycles like the Honda Hornet when it first came out, the 600. There was a super simple motorcycle and you just buy a black one and you change the pipes and you put flat bars on it and you know, you put mini indicators on it. You know, turn signals, as you guys say, you indicators. Turn. Yeah. Yeah. So small turn signals, small number play, minimize everything. Put as much in a strip, box. Strips, strips, strips. Yeah, it's all about what you can take off. Yeah. Fill a box, which was kind of the opposite of how we viewed the custom scene. The custom scene was add things to your bike. Yeah. We were like, take no, take things off your bike. Make it way less gu- and go faster. But there was an aesthetic side to that. We weren't going racing. We wanted our bikes to sound good and look good. And maybe handle better and brake better, but it, there was a, cu- a, a culture around customizing bikes, but I wouldn't call it custom culture. But what happened, I think, um, was people started adding those parts and those upgrades to older bikes, so you could get you could put upside down forks and Brembos on an old seventies CB750. Mm. Uh, and that whole cafe racer thing had been around for a while. A lot of it was riffing off the cafe racer vibe of. You know, before clip-ons, people used to uh, flip their handlebars and turn them upside down so that then they hang like, like it, yeah. clip-ons. I did that to a couple of bikes. That's awesome. And, well, uh, it, it's, <coughs> a, it's the
0: most affordable way to do it. Yeah, you
1: take the yeah. bars, you've got to flip them. So we would do that sort of stuff. Um, and so the Cafe Racer thing was more the inspiration than the custom scene. It was about making your bike cool and old school. Um, and people started customizing. The CB750s were a big one, and obviously BMW Airheads, the R80s, the R100s. And and I think one of the big influences actually came out of Japan. So um, there was Brat Style. So Go Takamini, who now lives here, um, he, he had his shop Brat Style in Yokohama, I think it is. Um, I hope I didn't get that wrong. <coughs> I haven't been to Japan yet. Um, but Brat Style, what they were doing was he was customizing things like the, the, the Yamaha SRs and, and affordable bikes. Um, and and uh, in the way w- for, for kids who couldn't afford the big expensive Harley Davidsons yeah. with those kind of seats that looked like the pan was made out of a skateboard deck, you know, the flat seat, the kind of maybe motocross bars, you know, lowered. It was almost kind of, I mean, brat style describes it quite well. They were the, the little yeah. brats of the custom scene done on the cheap. Um, and leaving the patina on on the fuel tank, you know these kind of and not only that, but builds. accessible
0: too, because yeah. getting a Harley back in the days was almost even for Americans it was difficult, mm. you know. Yeah, like buying a bike. Yeah, I mean it was expensive, and, and it was expensive, they, but it was limited. You know, yeah. if you went in and said I want a red one, they'd be like, well, we got a black one coming in in three weeks. Take it or leave it. Oh, know? right. No. So that
1: like that was it. I think for me, it was that what what inspired me from it was. Taking motorcycles that look like motorcycles where you've got a fuel tank and underneath the fuel tank is an engine and I can see it and it's made of metal and it hasn't got plastic crap all over it. And then you sit behind the fuel tank and you hang on in a kind of a racing mm-hmm. uh, a position that means business, not laid back with your arms up and your feet forward, but you're either kind of motocross style or cafe racer style, you, you know, and you want to throw that bike around, be loud, make noise, look cool, A little bit Mad Max, a little bit maybe punk rock. And uh, that was the scene. Yeah. The scene was a little bit Mad Max, a little bit punk rock. Take something old. You know, uh, take an old motorcycle and and put Brembo's and upside-down Olin's forks on it. Try and make it go faster. Put flat-side race carbs on it. Make it cool. Delete the airbox, which ruins the fueling, and then you have to fix that. But it was a whole aesthetic around that as well, you know, people were doing stuff, so it was a little bit of a blend of brat style meets a little bit of the street fighter scene, and not really that related to the custom scene, and that was what people were excited about, and it was visually beautiful, it looked good, those motorcycles just looked great, and then the people are still building them like that now.
0: That's amazing, that's amazing, okay, so then you do your second event, this is the crowd you're bringing in, And, and, and what happens after this?
1: Well, after the second event, and while we were planning the third event, um, we had loads of people come to this show and say, well, what is this? You know, and people were kind of saying, this is awesome, because it's like a kind of a club, it's like a hospitality event with sofas and cocktails and good coffee and nice food, as well as all the motorcycles. And because we styled it as a kind of a pop-up club, people were like, well, should this exist every weekend? And mm. that, was, that was a bit of a question. Should this yeah. be every weekend? And obviously, ideally, yeah, we'd all love to do that. And a, a couple of our visitors um, sought us out. And s- sought out me and Vicky and said, well, whose show is this? What is this? And one of them was a guy called Nicholas Cowell, who's Simon Cowell's brother. Nicholas Cowell is a huge motorcycle rider. He's his own, he, he runs his own business. He's, he's a real estate. Um, and uh, lives in, in the UK, loves motorcycles. And he's good friends with Charlie Borman. And they were planning to open a pub for motorcycle riders and have it as a members club. And he, was, he kind of said, I, I want to talk to you about this idea I've got. And there was another guy called Frederick Lukoff. Who's, um, he's a, actually a Dutch guy. Living, he was living in the UK, and he was the president and CEO of Stella McCartney. Huge bike rider. Owns about 25 motorcycles. Owns everything... All his holidays involved two wheels and disappearing for two, three weeks and riding with, with his buddies. Beautiful, what a a fantastic guy, as well as being incredibly sort of intelligent and a, a great mentor for me in business. And between Nicholas and Frederick, we introduced them to each other, and they said, "We've got to do this." And we looked at um, at uh, Nicholas and Charlie's idea for a club, and I was like, "Well, this is really cool, but this is a bit too exclusive. This is for your buddies, and they're only going to come in the summer." and it'll be tumbleweed in the wintertime, and this needs to open up to everybody else, and it needs to be more like our event, and, and Nicholas agreed, he said, well, you've done it, it's this event every day, so we, they, they, they sort of helped us with seed funding, um, we also had started earning money from our show, so our third show at Tobacco Dock actually made money, like some proper money in the bank and we were like oh right well we can invest they can invest yeah we had a whole bunch of seed money into this kind of idea so we put a business plan together shockingly the business plan made sense and initially vicky and i had thought we would hire people to run it and we still had all the people who had volunteered in those early shows all of those original bike shed guys who had been part of our scene, they'd volunteered in those first two shows and they were volunteering that third show. So we created a company, we gifted them shares, we had the seed funding, we put the business plan together and we started looking Amazing. for a venue. So at the same time as we did our third show, we found a venue and uh, we started working on it. And we found these railway arches in Shoreditch that were you know, a few hundred yards up the road from our original show venues, just as we'd moved off to Tobacco Dock. And we started the build out, and uh, and then after that seed money to to get the building and put together the business plan and work out how the hell we were going to do it. Um, Vicky and I quit our jobs, uh, which was maybe not the smartest thing to do, um, and you know became full time bike shed people. We hired a couple of our volunteers, Gareth, who works in our and who runs our. He's now our global brand director. He was like. Uh, actually second employee because Ross was also one of the volunteers he works for us but he's now retired to Cornwall yeah. uh, to live a simple life uh, and we miss him greatly but uh, Gareth and Ross were volunteers and they became part of the company Gareth's still a huge part of that business No, uh,
0: the, the, the loyalty of them sticking around and the loyalty you guys have created for, for your uh, members and for the people that come to your shows stunning it's amazing on your success of well not well, let's not talk about success yet but th- so far, when you got to that point, how much would you say is, is skill or luck or timing or all of the above, like, like how much, what, like?
1: I don't know, it's a funny question because um, a lot of people say to me, oh, you were so lucky. You were in just the right place at the right time. And I've spent the whole of my life thinking I was particularly unlucky. Housing market, job market, coming into TV, uh, as a creative director in broadcasting at the end, at the death of television, at the death of re- advertising revenues, joining MTV just as it f- you know began to fragment and fall apart. All these companies <laughs> I worked for, Fuck. joining publishing just as publishing was yeah. dying on its ass. You know, working for big companies for for Time Warner, you know, and, and News Corp and you know, and all those kind of big companies. Um, and I don't think I, the the thing is the harder you work, the luckier you are. I, I mean, we saw an opportunity. I could see. A phenomenon happening, but I was determined to drive it, not ride it. I mean, we wanted to influence and sustain the business. And I remember having a conversation with somebody who I won't name actually because it's a bit unfair, but somebody really big on the scene at that time, whose name everyone knows, said, How long do you think this bubble's going to last? And I said, It's going to last as long as we want it to. If we drive it and make it interesting, it won't be a bubble, it's not going to burst. Because this is cool, but motorcycling's been cool since what the '30s, '40s, '50s. Yeah. we're still looking at Kira Knightley selling perfume on a Ducati SS750 in, in TV ads, yeah. biking's cool. Chris Pratt is still being chased by dinosaurs on a motorcycle. I,
0: so I, I, I have. I'm just going to add to that, mm-hmm. but uh, you, you know, I, I was dealing with um, a company that rents out motorcycles. And I was there when they had a group of Germans that started off in Chicago and did Route sixty six and, and got to the LA facility and, and the stories that you hear them say, these big German men crying and breaking down saying this is a dream come true because I used to have the Elvis Presley poster of Elvis oh, on his wow, motorcycle yeah. and I got to do this, you know. Yeah. It's very cool.
1: And that's the thing. So for me biking was always a thing. And and I said it's up to us to sustain it because the industry's forgotten. The industry has turned into the transport industry, and if you think about motorcycle motorcycling as a, as a business, if you build motorcycles, especially ten years ago, those were pe- those were engineers working in the transport industry, and their relationship is not with consumers; it's with dealers. So they're successful if they sell their bikes to a dealership, and their look, and their badging, and to turn a dealer into a soleus dealer, a single brand dealer and to buy their big logos and to buy their shiny floors and to buy their lighting and all of their point-of-sale merch uh, furniture. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, but that's the thing is they, you know, those brands didn't have a relationship with the customers at all. Yeah. And a, lo- a lot of the time, the dealers were just people who loved biking and wanted it to be a job, and they weren't necessarily amazing marketeers or business people. They just loved bikes. So there was a disconnect between <clears throat> us and the manufacturers because, to me, motorcycling is a lifestyle choice. And it's about passion and freedom. It's not transport. Yeah. You know, it's about adventure and camaraderie and the thrill of speed or, you know, experience. It's experiential. So nobody was doing that. And we saw that as an opportunity. And we saw the chance to be the voice of the riders to the industry. And so we were kind of lucky. So the timing was luck. But I think we, we identified a genuine opportunity to build something amazing because... You look on at other people building amazing things, like whoever founded MTV and Sumner Redstone and all those guys that created that and the the early people who put all of that business together. You go, wow, you created an iconic brand or the Ace Cafe or to found a company like Triumph. And I thought, well, here's a chance to found something iconic that might be around in 20 years. And I didn't want to miss that chance. I'd worked for other people as a creative director or in other senior roles, making their brands great. And I thought, well, why shouldn't we do that for what we love and for our community? So there was luck in that things were happening, but I think we made our own luck. And obviously having worked for big complicated businesses, Vicky and I knew how to run business and manage people. So, and we knew how to build teams. And really it's about people. It's all about human capital. It's about your team, your staff, your crew, and we got that right, and that made us very lucky.
0: One, one of my favorite um, definitions of luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Mm-hmm. That's what luck is, Yeah. Know? so it, it's not like it just fell <clears throat> on your lap and stuff, you know.
1: It certainly didn't fall on our laps. I mean, we, we had to make it, and, and I think we wanted to play our part in amplifying something that was happening, not on our own. You know, I wouldn't say, we, we're not changing the world, but we were part of a family of businesses, of cultures and companies you know and you know f- for shows like the, the one show and the Handbuilt show and for bike Xif, and for the distinguished gentleman's ride and for some of these you know really amazing bike builders that are, that are doing really cool things and i, I don't want to start naming them because i'll forget really important builders but also including companies like Deus, and and you know and the companies that are built around you know and I, i'm sort of resisting the temptation to kind of list off loads and loads of companies but between us we're a family of brands and we've told the manufacturers what to do and and the manufacturers have changed what they what they build and ha- what their bikes look like i mean in 2014 we were invited by a manufacturer to go and look at the prototypes of the bikes they were building under nda and say what do you think and when i saw oh, their so huge <clears throat> when i saw their lookbook it was full of the bike builders on our collective blogs what we were writing about and sharing it was what they were doing to motorcycles they were going to do to their next generation and that happened with a Jap- Japanese manufacturer as well um, a few people came to us and said what do you think of this look at this so we ended up confirming what they were seeing and saying yes this is what people want they want smaller turn signals and smaller fenders and they want more attractive you know license plate holders and they, you know, they want tidier, tighter switch gear and, and they want a retro look and feel. They want a motorcycle where you can see the engine and, and, you know, the fuel tank sits on top and the seat is behind. And they created the modern classic range and, and, uh, and they were all doing it. You know, Triumph and Moto Guzzi and Ducati with the Scrambler. Suddenly all these brands were going, we need, we need to build bikes that look like the bikes our customers are building out of our own mod- old models that we don't make anymore. And then the Japanese got on board, so I think collectively we all played a big role in putting the soul back into motorcycles, and uh, so I think collectively we made our own luck. Yeah,
0: oh, no, absolutely. Sounds like that was. Uh, would you say riding motorcycles was um, was kind of like a luxury?
1: I think it is a luxury. Yeah, I mean, I think every. I think what we deal and, with and
0: and and, and 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 continue that thought, but it, what I'm also asking is. You know, I, I've traveled to many countries, and, you know, motorcycles are, is, is a common transportation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a luxury. It's, you know, in America, it's, it's considered luxury, but because there's so many financing options, which before there was no financing yeah. options, you know, so like...
1: I think it depends on your definition of the term luxury. To me, the word luxury is a thing you don't have to do. Right. I mean, you don't have to eat out. Eating out is a luxury. You can go to the store and cook at home. So if you, every time you eat out, if you dine at somebody else's premises and they cook for you and they do the washing up, that's a luxury. Right, you don't need right. that. And you don't, I mean, unless you live in Bangkok and you, you, you kind of can't afford right. a Right, those, those are the, the that's extremes. Transport. But, right. but, in, but in terms of people who buy a motorcycle for lifestyle, it's a luxury. 100%. And, and a lot of things we do are luxuries, and I think we, we need to recognize that. So for me, that's really what I mean about and luxury.
0: customizing is a luxury. Absolutely. And, then, and dressing up and the mm. gear and, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we are kind of in a, in a, pr- a business of privilege and lux- luxury. The great thing is it's accessible and anyone can afford it is fantastic it's an affordable luxury but we're definitely in the luxury business that's beautiful
0: when did you guys so so you you did your third event now you get a spot you open up your spot uh a year later you have a manufacturer calling you trying to get your input on the styles of the bikes uh when when did you guys say fuck man we did it like we're we're we're, the big, we're a big deal.
1: I, I don't know. Because the first years it, mm. are
0: difficult, and there's challenges, and there's money. Yeah. And, and maybe you haven't even got to that point now. No,
1: I'm not even sure we have got to that point.
0: I mean... But you've been on TV shows. You've been on... on I mean,
1: it's, you guys are world-known at this point. Yeah, but it's, it's weird. We're, we always feel like the underdog. You know, we're always slightly underfunded, slightly fighting against... A, a, COVID. You know, we, just opened, we just opened a venue in the, in the middle of two years of COVID. It closed our UK business... I mean, it could have killed us. Um, We survived through loyalty, the generosity of our friends and our backers. Uh, I've I've never been able to relax. I still still earn less than I did before I started doing all of this on an annual basis. I have a huge overdraft. I'm not kicking back. I I work seven days a week, and I just had my first vacation in five years. So I don't feel like we've made it. I feel like we're constantly fighting. And, um, you know... Things have been amazing. I mean, I'm very, very happy. I love what I do, um, and you know, and happiness isn't always driven by wealth and success. It's driven by a sense of achievement, and I know we've achieved amazing things. But um, the, the thing, I, I think, we'll feel like we've really got it when we can sit back and watch other people run with it, because this isn't about me and Vicky or our core team. You know, we, we have a real core group of people, and Stuart. Who's now an integral part of yeah? The but beers, you guys created a
0: value that people yeah. are following. That that's why I, I have yeah. such an interest to talk to both of you, and 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 I want I want to know you know like what were you guys doing before like yeah. you, you guys <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. Mm. It almost you guys want to be a part of it, but at the same time it, it's about legacy. It's so big now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know you know. But I mean, roots, roots
0: count so much. Yeah, they do.
1: When when Dan came to our business, camera Dan, he said. To me, Dutch, you and Vicky have to be on camera, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's not about us." And he was going, "Yeah, but it's always about people, and people are interested in you. It's the stories. It is the stories, but we really want it to be about everybody because my greatest joy is, and, and this happened yesterday, was when other people are giving a tour of this venue, our customers showing people around. Yeah, and they're showing people around like they own it. That to me is success when people feel like this is their place. I, I worked for but the Extreme Sports Channel for a long time, and my stated goal as the creative director is for the athletes to feel like they own the brand, not us. You know, it's their brand; it's what they do. We don't do it. I, I, I can't do it back. No, you guys, you guys definitely created that. No, so, but you guys, you guys definitely have created that. So for me, I'm, I'm happy for to represent and tell the story. But uh, I'm not the most amazing motorcyclist or motorcycle rider or business entrepreneur or incredible person. I'm grumpy and moody and lazy like everybody else. You know, and, and for me, it's about the whole community. And you know, what I really love about bike culture is all the stuff we don't talk about. Or we, we talk about it in a subtle way. It's actually the fact that it's great common ground. It unites people, even though they might disagree about you know, vaccinations or mask wearing or abortion rights or whatever, they can disagree about all sorts of things, but we should be reminded about the things we agree on like you know basic freedom and democracy and being a good human being. Those things are powerful. And so whether it's sports or the or other things that you love, the passions we have, motorcycling is a great metaphor for that. And and really what I want to do is I want to build culture around common ground. And motorcycling is great common ground. It unites people and I want the legacy of what we do to be around uniting people, around something people are passionate about. And and biking is an amazing thing to be passionate about. It's exciting, it's cool. It creates friendships. It changes it, your
0: mood. Cha-
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate expression of mindfulness. If you want to look up what that's all about, riding a motorcycle is literally being mindful. You know, I, th- I think it's so good for the soul, and I think it, it's kind of good for humanity in a kind of a secret kind of way. And, and, our, and our goal is to create the home for that, and yeah. then for people to do their own thing. It's not for us to organize everybody and tell everybody what to do or tell people what's cool or what's not cool. That's not our job. Yeah. Our job is to get everybody in a room and get them to have a proper conversation and do cool shit.
0: That's that's amazing. You guys are are killing it. You're just you, congratulations on that. Um, tell me about when you opened up the uh, the LA. You you opened up during COVID. It's it's recently three months. <clears throat> was it to duplicate what you currently had, or did you want to switch it up? Uh, what, it was what, what it was definitely a
1: chance to switch it up. I mean, we built London on a budget. I mean, this is built on a budget too, but you know, we did the best we could with the money and the time and the resources we had. And when we built that venue, we learned a lot of things. I mean, it's very difficult to take your passion and make money out of it. And uh, hospitality is a terrible way to make money, cooking people food and feeding them and making that affordable and good is yeah. not what a lot of people do. really fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of other restaurants, they really commoditize that experience to try and make it financially viable. They want you out in 90 minutes and they want it all scheduled in advance and pre-booked and they don't want walk-in trade and they don't want you to stick around too long and they, they want an average spend per head at a certain level and it's a terrible way to make money i don't really want to make money out of hospitality Retail's tough too you know you've got to get people to come to your place we find it hard to get people to buy our stuff online because they want the experience of coming here so they wait and i'm like no no buy our stuff online <laughs> it's a great business model but they're like no no i'm going to come to your store and try something on um, all the things we do, and the event business is great, uh, but it's, it's really, really expensive and high risk and, and a very hard work. And it nearly kills us every time we do a show. So, um, but we did realise in our London venue how to make a business out of it and separating out the events and the event space. And also having a members bar for the members. Because when we started our London business, we didn't have a club, but we called it Bike Shed Motorcycle Club. Before we became Bike Shed Moto Co. And that was to make it a bit more friendly. Because people kept thinking you had to join to come. And we wanted to make it clear you didn't. But when we, we opened it. You get in, jumped in or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, um, but when we opened in London, everybody said, oh, well, how do I join your club? And we were like, well, uh, okay. And we created this club, but we had no space. So one of the switch-ups was to have a private members bar. So that the club members could come to a place that was their own um, and, and also having the event space much more usable by us and by other people, so the event space was a big breakout, but we needed to grow it. We realized that actually we had a business that attracted m- way more non-riders than we expected. You know I thought we'd have maybe 20, 30 percent non-riders coming to our London club, but it's more like 50, 60 percent That's and so cool.: a- And actually, I think that's really cool because one of the limitations of going to motorcycle destinations is it's full of dudes on bikes yeah. and maybe a few women i mean one in one in five women ride in the u.s and probably it's more like one in four in in california perhaps around here but you know i don't want to go to places full of dudes kicking tires on bikes you know i want to go to places full of humans that represent the whole population i want to see kids kids and dogs and families and you know, and I, I want everyone to feel comfortable. and I, want it I to that be
0: that's awesome. You guys do mm. treats for dogs that come in. Yeah. It's amazing. I and just I, saw that. I just witnessed yeah, that. Yeah,
1: and you want half the people in here to be female because that's half the population, right? So it should be representative. So one of the things we didn't expect in London was to be a really popular food and drink destination, a hospitality destination for non-riders who were enjoying bike culture in the way that, I guess if you can go to the Hard Rock Cafe and not play the guitar, right, or the drums, you don't need to be a rock star. So you can come to Bike Shed if you don't ride a motorcycle. And actually, it also, the other side effect was it united the biking tribes. Because whether you come on a Harley or a sports bike or an adventure bike or some uber-cool cafe racer that you built yourself from the ground up, if half of the customers in the building don't ride, you guys are all pushed together as the real deal. And now you're the community glues those people together because so they're cool. the authentic heart so what it did was it untribalized so and if you go to the ace cafe or to rikers or any of the great destinations in the uk and i'm sure you know some of the places here where the rock store and neptune's net or old place or Newcombs when that was open you know people are in their tribes and and i think it's kind of nice to be kind of in one tribe instead of all these micro tribes and going well i i just i mean i remember i used to ride uh super duke and I had the Super Duke R and so I was a moderator on the Super Duke R forum on the Superduke forum and I used to arrange meets and rides and I was an authority on airboxes and velocity stacks and gearing and you know throttle cams and all the bullshit that you get into if you're on a forum and all of us would meet and we all had the same bike you know we, we weren't even on one brand we were all on Super Dukes. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's kind of stupid really when you think it's about ridiculous it. I know. and now i love seeing you didn't see bikers riding together on different types of motorcycles no, now before. you see it and also before you could tell what people rode in on by what they were wearing and now <laughs> you can't
0: <laughs> no I'm, I'm laughing because i, I have three different <clears throat> bikes that are three different categories <clears throat> and it's like if, if i ride my harley i gotta wear the harley gear if i wear the if i ride the <laughs> bmw it's got to be the bmw thing. if i ride the ev it's the ev thing and, yeah. it, and it's so fucking different and it's it's, it's confusing and it's annoying and it's inconvenient. And, and you know I've been writing 20-something years, and I really haven't seen anything like this, where it's like everybody's coming together.
1: Yeah, it's one tribe, and it's, it's one, one tribe, tribe. tribe. Under the gaze of the non-riders. And I don't just mean the customers, the community, the city. Our right. neighbours. Right. I mean, that's why we The neighbours, the yeah. kids,
0: the dogs, everything. It doesn't even matter, you know. You ride? Cool. You don't ride? Cool. You know, yeah. like, you want to get into riding? Cool. You'll never ride? Cool. Fuck yeah. it. Did you try the burgers? Fucking cool. Exactly. It's,
1: so we really needed to expand on that opportunity. Yeah. To really amplify this space for L.A. and for the locals in the arts district. as a really cool place. Uh, I mean, in London, we're in the top 3% of all restaurants on TripAdvisor out of 28,000 restaurants. I believe it. And it's the service, by the way. It's the people. Yeah. The food's good. It's not great. It's good. But it's the staff. It's the In team. L.A., the food's great. Yeah, and I have to say, in L.A., I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think that the food is elevated even more because we have a much bigger, better kitchen. I mean, our chef in London's awesome, uh, and we have an amazing chef here, Enrico, who rides, obviously. He's got three bikes, and his son, they share bikes. Fantastic guys. And... Um, but they have a really big kitchen, which we built. So we, we made a much bigger kitchen, a much easier kitchen to cook out of. We can do more. We can cook to a higher standard. We've got way more. We've got 325 seats in the restaurant. And you can just come for coffee or you can come for a full, which you can y- have for you're, a romantic date.
0: Which you're, you're saying it very yeah. casual, but you guys have a full coffee bar that you guys make all the fancy drinks and, and you guys get quality coffee.
1: Yeah, coffee's important especially the bike riders. Oh, so important.
0: Yeah, especially. Yeah, you can't have bullshit coffee. And proper
1: cocktails if you come in the evening that are are mixed in front of you. We're not pouring out of a pre-mixed bottle, you know. Does
0: the UK location and the LA location, do they share similar items? Or you... Yeah,
1: yeah, we have a similar menu, slightly smaller in the UK. You guys eat burgers
0: over there? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's true. <Where> are <laughs> that it was an American thing. Although uh,
1: we don't say chicken sandwich, that's a chicken burger. I don't know why you guys, it suddenly becomes a sandwich when you do the same thing. That's just, lazy. That's just American laziness. Yeah, that confuses us. Yeah, bread,
0: chicken, <clears throat> chicken sandwich.
1: Yeah. Um, it's really simple. We actually have the UK coffee here. So the, the coffee that we serve here, you get the, the UK blend, or the London blend or the LA. Well, it's not a blend, actually. It's a single origin Brazilian, but the London coffee or the LA coffee. That's awesome. So the London coffee is a little... Actually, the London coffee is more like an arts district coffee. It's more like a blue bottle coffee.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, whereas what we call the LA blend is a little bit more like the softer, you know, coffee, tea leaf, whatever that place is. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of softer, more of a Starbucks coffee. Um, so general, we, general, yeah, coffee. Gen, general Generic. Coffee, generic coffee. So, yeah, we we try. And so it's got the same as the London stuff. And also we have full English breakfast here. Um, We're going to start to do the Sunday roast. Uh, But also in the UK, we have huevos rancheros, uh, which is my favorite breakfast. So, so, you know, we have a lot of crossovers going the other way as well. Uh, We always had that. We we always had a little bit of a California Uh, style.
0: That's another thing. Uh, As I started traveling, uh, there was a point like I'd be in like, you know, Dubai or, you know, Qatar or somewhere like that. And they wouldn't have tequilas. You know, and, and now tequila is. That's yeah, everywhere, yeah. Yeah, UK, big on tequilas. Well, I guess if they, yeah, it's well over the whole world,
1: Big on tequilas, big, big on. Uh, Rum's I, always been around, right? Avocado toast has taken over the world. Avocado so toast. There's a Californian export. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the whole world's becoming more globalized anyway. And I think if you live in a big city, whether you live in Austin or London or New York or Los Angeles or maybe Dubai or Tokyo, we're probably all got the same flavor profiles for coffee and the food that we like and the drinks that we like we're all being marketed in the same way yeah uh, and we, and we want to be an international brand so we want to have an international well i call it sometimes i unfairly describe it as kind of like being in a really nice hotel right like you know you, you expect eggs benedict and you expect avocado toast and you expect a really good steak or maybe a risotto you expect those things to be on a menu and you want to know what they look like before they turn up on the plate you don't want a surprise I don't need my Eggs Benedict deconstructed with wasabi on the side. I want Eggs Benedict. And so really what we're trying to do is offer that consistency. So hopefully people, as we open more bike sheds in the future, it doesn't matter where you go, you'll get a similar experience.
0: Which that's already being on the works, right?
1: It's on the works in our minds. Um, We're certainly planning expansion. I mean, the idea of opening Los Angeles was a kind of a proof of concept, proof of scalability. I know this community exists all over the world. In London, it's a niche within a niche. It's small. It's a difficult city to own and ride a motorcycle in. It's expensive. Um, LA has got maybe twenty-five times as many people in it that do what we do in in the similar catchment area. But we know that there are cities all over the US straight away without going back into Europe. I mean, we we can do this in Atlanta. We can do this in Austin. We can do this in Dallas, Houston, Denver. We can do it in Miami. I mean, sure. there are so many places we could do this, and a lot of people want us to do this in those cities.
0: What, what's what's the requirement? What are you trying to look for? Are you trying to look for, like, a, like for example, in California you could only ride 12 months out of the year because of the weather? Yeah, I think... You know, um, are you looking for motorcycle-friendly spots? Yeah, or? we
1: need to be motorcycle-friendly. Weather's not always a thing because in London you can only ride nine months of the year comfortably, and then it becomes all about what gear you're going to wear. Um, But it never gets super cold either. There are plenty of places where, you know, you can only ride a few months of the year. And, And I think what we did in London was we created a destination where you could come even when it wasn't biking weather and you didn't have to bring your motorcycle. You can still be a rider, come to the bike shed and come in a cab and drink more beer. And in fact, Q4, when it's winter in the UK, is our biggest trading period. So we know that works. So I'm not afraid of a New York... I'm, uh, when it comes to places like New York and San Francisco, I'm more afraid of labour laws and city bureaucracy than I am Oof. of the weather. You know, that makes me nervous. Um, having dealt with California bureaucracy, that sucks. Um, so we'll probably go to places... I mean, maybe Texas should be next and Georgia because they're really business-friendly and they want to help us. I mean, we've met with senior representatives of the, the state of Georgia and Texas who are like, we want your company here so being wanted is important. Um, we, need a, we need to know our crowd is there. We need to know the riders are there, people like us. But in the digital age, that's easy. We know where our followers are, and we know who engages with us. Um, we need to find a venue where, on the one hand, it's crowded enough to attract casual visitors, but where, by having motorcycles, we won't piss off our neighbours, yeah. which is why we're really strict about people being assholes around our venue on their motorcycles, because we're part of a community as well, and we don't want to be... We don't yeah, well want to have neighbors. Them. We all have neighbors. It's, it's a great way to get shut down. I mean, you know, I know there, there's some some rides around a, a couple of shops in uh, Hollywood that got shut down because the people that went to those rides behaved badly. So, we don't want to get caught up in that. So, we so we have to be very open. A lot of people come to us saying, "I've got a building, I've got a venue, I've got a place, you need to come. I'm building this big development. You guys would fit right in." And I say, "Well, we need motorcycle parking on site for 100 motorcycles." And if some of them are a little bit noisy, we need to not be hated by our neighbors. That That's almost like step one. And and also we want character and soul. And and we need finance. We need money. I mean, we built this business off investment funding. We've got 89 backers. And they're wow. riders. They're just riders who've done a little bit better financially than, than some of the rest of us.
0: On a business point of view, how do you guys, how do you go about your funding? Do you do it? privately do you guys reach out do you guys make it public
1: it's been private which is difficult um it's it's limited that way right? yeah it's very limited i mean what, what i never wanted to do was go out there and you know people always come to us with crowdfunding things and saying you you are perfect for crowdfunding and maybe we are maybe we are perfect for crowdfunding and we should have done it and we missed a good opportunity but we've done kind of what i call curated crowdfunding you know through our original two backers through Nicholas Cowell and Frederick Lukoff we then got introduced to other people and we had people we knew who were and people who became customers quite early on who were successful you know ex-racers or hedge fund managers or musicians or actors who made money who loved motorcycle culture gave us their money and in, 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 you know and we ended up with you know, 89 people contributing to the business over three years or so. And we, and we, we haven't finished yet. We're still finalising the round for, for the finishing LA. We're still, you know, getting to break even and dealing with all of that side of things. But it's incredibly difficult because, you know, it's a private personal conversation. We want our backers to be people that we could go for a beer with. We don't want big, the big VC money where they want a three-year ROI and, and they're looking for the exit strategy we want people that, yeah, it's a business, it's supposed to make money, it's supposed to be profitable, we expect you to profit from being an investor at some point, but we really want people to be backing our community and our vision. And also, there are founding members. You know, almost all of our investors ride. Uh, I would say 90% of them ride motorcycles, and those that don't ride drive and love cars and collect cars or motorcycles. And uh, they're our best customers. And you wouldn't know them from our members or our normal customers when they're in here. You know, they're just part of the community. They're the ones who made loads of money at some point And I'm, I can put my, my energy into this business and Vicky can put her energy into this business and, you know, give our sort of heart and soul into making this great. And what they're able to do is put their money into the business. Um, so it's it's been a difficult way of doing things, but it's been rewarding.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a passion industry. Yeah. It's a it really passion is, industry. Yeah. It's a passion investment. It's a. Pa- it's not just numbers. It's passion, and yeah, you guys been doing that, uh, it, and and I know you're super busy, and and I appreciate all the time you're giving me. Uh, how is it uh, working with your wife? It's uh, because you guys are life partners, yeah, business it partners. Really hard at the beginning. Now you're in different mm. countries. You guys have your kid, You know, your family. Yeah.
1: H- how's that? I mean, it's definitely an art, and it's taken us a few years to get it right. I mean, I think. The thing is, me and Vicky are really different. You know, she's like a panic first check later. You know, like she'll go, oh, my God, I've lost my phone. And then she hasn't. It's just in her back pocket. And whereas I'll go, I hmm, haven't seen my phone for about two hours. Maybe I left it in that cab earlier. And I'll sneak off quietly, find the Uber driver, and get him to bring it back to me. And nobody will ever know I lost my phone. <laughs> so that sums up the two you of us. You don't like the dramatic uh, Yeah, so we're very theater, different. The she's theater. very instant. She's she very quickly gets a handle on people and whether or not they're legit or cool or trustworthy, very instinctive. And I step back, do the research, bit of diligence, get to know them, decide if I like them in a month's time. But together, between the two of us, we, we come at the same problems from completely different angles, but we always come to the same conclusion and we have the same taste. So we're, we're lucky in that way. But so yin-yang. Yeah, but it's very yin-yang. We are very, very yin-yang. And I, I think... Probably as two co-founding business owners, I think it's probably quite hard for our team because, you know, when we don't agree, it's like mum and dad are fighting and they all hide. Uh, So it's probably a bit awkward. And we can be grumpy with each other, which isn't always the best look uh, in terms of leadership. You know, we're probably meanest to each other than we are to anybody else. But um, it's been a work in progress to be able to go home and then not still be talking about business. And we haven't really succeeded in that. And and this vacation we just took was a real step in rediscovering ourselves. And, in fact, now we don't work Mondays. I say that. We were already here the last Monday. But we came back from our holiday, our vacation in Bali, and said, right, we don't work Mondays anymore because we can't do seven days a week for the next ten years. We've got to have a day off. We want to be here on the weekends when our customers It's mandatory. But it was really, really hard. And also, I think we were both very proud and and had very strong views. and, And when we don't agree on a thing... It's, I mean, I, I use, I just for shits
0: and giggles, yeah. like, like if you, if you want, just yeah. for shits and giggles, what would be like something you guys don't agree on?
1: Um, <clears throat> that's, that's a good question. Sometimes she has very strong views about things which aren't very important. And I can see that changing them is just going to piss a whole bunch of people off. And I'm going, do you know what? It's okay. No one will die. But she's very detail focused. So she won't let it lie. And, and I'm, I'm always kind of looking for the kind of the rational way out and the compromise, and she doesn't do compromise at all. So that's usually where we disagree. It's not that she's wrong, she's right. It's just that I don't think it's important enough to push. Um, and sometimes I've learned from her to be more pushy and to not take no for an answer or to not compromise. I've learned to be less compromising because I have a very clear vision of what I think is right and wrong, but sometimes I think it doesn't matter, whereas she thinks it always matters. But I've also taught her to compromise a little bit. But we would disagree about stupid things like, you know, where a light should be or where, where a refrigerator should be or if it's in people's way or not. You know, stupid stuff where I'll go, do you know what? It doesn't matter not that a big much. Whereas she'll be like really pretty annoyed.
0: Yeah, she's, she's, she's more passionate yeah. about certain things. And sometimes. just like, it's, it's, it's a light bulb.
1: Yeah, and sometimes what, what, who we collaborate with and who we work with, I'll go, I think what they're doing is great. And she'll go, yeah, but that guy's a real dick. And I was going, yeah, he's a bit of a dick, but what he's doing is cool. And she was going, yeah, but I don't want to work with a guy who's a bit of a dick. And I go, yeah, but he's, he's just passionate and proud and excited. And, you know, maybe he's not a very good people person. And maybe he's a bit on the spectrum and he doesn't really understand he's being an asshole. But actually what he's doing is really fucking cool. So let's support it. So we'll disagree about soft things like that. I mean, we don't have major business disagreements or right. anything like that. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's really tough. I wouldn't recommend any couple do it. We found our way, but it was not easy.
0: Yeah, no, no, congratulations. It's, it's amazing. You guys are doing it very beautifully. Somebody actually just showed me a picture that they took of you and uh, Vicky casually just, you know, in each other's arms overlooking at oh. the parking lot. Oh, cool. And they were like, how, how amazing are they? They, they? they established this beautiful business and then their relationship and just everything about them is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually one more last thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the decoration and who you guys worked with to execute LA because LA's beautiful A beautiful location oh, thank you i mean the it was, artwork the yeah. paintings the everything
1: well we're, we're both very aesthetically driven we're both very creative and um and i think you know we always like that idea of trying to find a place that anyone would feel comfortable in you want it to be kind of aspirational and upmarket but not exclusive so i want somebody to come here who's a carpenter or a ceo and feel like this is their place And it shouldn't matter whether they're male or female, younger, older, whatever their orientations are, all that stuff. I want anybody to feel that they can be here. And how do you achieve that? How do you be a little bit aspirational and upmarket, but be accessible? And I think what we tried to do is combine having these buildings with soul. You know, like railway arches in London that were built to support railways, not hold people. with poured concrete floors, red brick walls. And and you know, and here we've got concrete floors, red brick walls, open ceilings, and we, we wanted to take that industrial feel that feels timeless, <clears throat> and kind of maybe a little bit masculine. And then inside of that, we put, uh, I guess, club. So you put Chesterfield sofas, and you know, we were kind of looking at kind of English gentlemen's clubs rather than the American version of a gentleman's club, yeah. English version of that along with a little bit of mid-century, a little bit of Art Deco. because It's very, it's very
0: Kingsman. It is a
1: little, Well, it is in here. This is very Kingsman, because we wanted this to be like a British gentleman's club. Because why not? It's fun. Uh, you know, panelled walls and, you know, kind of... Fun. I want to buy a sword. I, I want to have a, a sword now. Yeah, you need a sword and an open fire. I mean, none of this needed to be here. This was just fun. Uh, but the rest of the space... It was so good taste. Yeah, we we wanted to make it feel really cool and really photographic and really nice. And we took that kind of, you know, 20s and 30s LA aesthetic of kind of art deco and post-art deco and early industrial and mixed that in with English gentlemen's clubs. uh, And also that kind of garage culture where you might have an old Chesterfield sofa and a mid-century Danish sofa side by side with a a G-plan coffee table and a stove. Right. We wanted that <laughs> yeah. eclectic, almost eBay yeah, vibe. Yeah, like, like in the other rooms. The blue and, room. it, and, and in London, we were literally built on eBay. You know, we bought all of our sofas from different people. You know, we went onto eBay and said, we'll have that, that sofa and that chair and then try to match it with one. other ones. I mean, here it was a bit different because we needed to open the place quickly. So we ordered 40 sofas from Chesterfield and had them made. Uh, but we want them to wear in and they're not all exactly the same color. And you know, we wanted to have, have a little bit of a vibe to it. But really it was about trying to find somewhere that felt cool and aspirational but not exclusive so anyone would feel comfortable and riffing off that industrial with a little bit of kind of because art deco is kind but, of timeless but, but this is
0: you and vicky doing yeah us.
1: yeah i mean we work with an architect and actually he's a really talented architect and and a good company that uh, called spacecraft and they specialize in restaurants but actually we knew exactly what we wanted he helped us with space planning and, and, yeah, and construction am. But we literally, you know, down wall, to... The, is yeah. This is not
0: wallpaper, this is... It's
1: um, called anaglypta, so it's like 3D wallpaper. Um, but down to the spacing of, you know, like you know, how many levels all of the wood paneling would be and whether it's turned or not and all those I, things. I, I, like the, oh, oops, my I love
0: all the little flamingos and the... Yeah,
1: we, we went to this, uh, this huge place called King Richard in Whittier, which is like this giant building full of secondhand stuff. And we bought the dogs, and we bought <coughs> the flamingos, and we bought the clock, and there's loads of stuff in here from there's there. So much stuff. Yeah, we just kind of went out and wanted to look collected over time. and it, 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 I, I, know
0: I don't want to compare it to this, but it reminds me of like a, like a casino in Vegas, mm. where it's like any corner you look at and take a picture, it's beautiful. It's decor, mm. you know, like the win or the encore, like every corner is so well thought of.
1: I mean, that's certainly nice to hear. I mean, we aspire to that. We were limited by time and money and what we, our vision versus what we could do. But, you know, it, it was certainly, you know, how good can we make it? And we, we put a lot more effort in than we could or should have maybe. We, pro- we built something that we want to be here. In te- you know, a lot of stuff in L.A. especially, you, you buy the land, you build something new, you expect it to last five years, you knock it down and build another one. Yeah. And we wanted to build something a bit more permanent and a bit yeah, more timeless.
0: Well, you guys did it. Yeah, Congratulations.
1: So, you know, hopefully this, will s- this building will stand the test of time. I mean, the, the building itself was built in 1945.
0: The, the guts of it.
1: The, the, the shell and the... The yeah, shell, the shell. So, the shell. so um, you know, we definitely want to build something. And this is a... You know, our bars are huge and big and solid and made of I love this bar and, too. Yeah, so all of that stuff, you know, we wanted that to be around for a long time. And tough, tough furniture yeah sort of pro- well it, it, it's i
0: i have a i have a saying i've been saying yeah. a lot lately and it's just i can't afford cheap shit Yeah, you know because it, it, it just costs you so much mm-hmm. money we all know the story you know you buy something cheap it breaks you do it again you do it again and and you you, you spend three or four <coughs> times when you, you just buy it one time
1: especially a motorcycle you know Sp- people yeah, yeah people Maybe always say to me oh i've got this much money to spend on this bike and Don't do it. Or the donor. And I'd buy, like, spend as much money on the donor as you can because what you really want is you want a donor motorcycle that doesn't need repairing before you start customizing it. Buy a donor that's perfect and then customize that. Otherwise, you're going to spend all your money, you know, balancing the carbs and, 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 you know, changing the pistons and making the motorcycle work in the first place.
0: Yeah, the other thing that people do when they buy a motorcycle is uh, they they spend all their money on their bike and, and they don't have money for safety gear.
1: So true, and it's yeah. like,
0: guys, come on. You know, if you're going to buy a motorcycle, you need two, $3,000 for safety gear. Mm. Dutch, I, I, I hope to have you on the podcast again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I hope pleasure. to speak to Vicky next time. And then uh, any events, anything that's going on, please let us know or let me know. And uh, I want to ma- push you guys and promote you guys as much as possible. Um, I love what you did here. Uh, like I said, I've been riding almost 20-something years, and, and I've been looking for this my whole life. So thank you for bringing it home.
1: Absolute pleasure. I mean, the great thing is thousands of people feel the same way. uh, We're the same. I agree. So we we just found different ways to express it. But thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Sorry, sir. (laughs) Thank you, Dutch.